Hey, this is Ethan. It's Sunday morning and we just finished recording the podcast for tomorrow. And I just wanted to send a quick message to say, first of all, thank you so much, whether you're a first time listener or have been with us from the start. Thank you so much for being here. I still pinch myself to think that anyone is listening to this show, let alone thousands of you. So that's the first thing. The second thing is if you like this show and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please take a second just to leave us a rating and a review. It's still the best way to get the word out there. Uh, And if you're listening somewhere else, tell a friend about us. We have some really cool things coming up over the next couple weeks. I think the show on Friday is going to be the best one yet. Um, As for this show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss why China's investing in Antarctica and how Chile plans to control its critical minerals. So that's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Doing very well, thank you, Ethan. Still in New York. It's a sunny day. The energy of the city, feeling good. Oh, I believe it. Oh, I forgot you're on the road. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little jealous. Although, <laughs> given given my experiences in, in New York, I'm sure you're feeling a little worse for wear this morning. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a polarizing <laughs> place, right? Sure is. So, uh, we're heading south for our first story, and I mean. I mean, really south, all, as far south as you can go. So, so John, why don't you take us there? Yeah, we're going all the way down to the bottom of the globe to Antarctica, uh, one of the most treacherous, uh, unforgiving, and oddly driest places on Earth. Um, and it's one with increasingly um, uh, a lot of uh, international intrigue, shall oh. we say. There we go. Got the plug in, right? Well in. Well in, John. <laughs> go on. Yes. Okay. So last week, um, we started to hear about China's expanding footprint in Antarctica. Uh, There was a big report that uh, came out from a US-based think tank, which used satellite imagery to examine a new Chinese base that's being built, um, which has been built, which is actually China's fifth on the frozen continent. Um, This report said that that, that the base represented the most significant expansion of China's Antarctic footprint in a decade. That's a quote. So that's obviously when we started to pay attention, right? Like I said, China already has four bases spread around Antarctica, which is more than the US and among the most of any single country in the world. Uh, But this new station is only 2,000 miles from New Zealand, which is interesting. You forget how far New Zealand is down there. Um, And only uh, 200 miles from the United States sort of flagship's uh, Antarctic station, the McMurdo Station. And it's the largest research facility in Antarctica. So it's interesting enough that they're building another station, but its location makes it, you know, even more interesting, especially noteworthy, I guess. There are fairly strict rules about the the sort of activities that are allowed in Antarctica. That's right, there are. And, and actually, this is an issue that's close to my heart because during my uh, time in the Foreign Service, I was working on uh, Antarctic legal issues. So it's something I know a little bit about. Um So if we take a step back, Antarctica is kind of governed in a very general sense by what's known as the Antarctic Treaty of 1959. Um, And it was originally signed by 12 countries uh, and then signed by China in the 1980s. And the treaty sets out a series of rules about how Antarctica can kind of be managed and used by, by by everyone in the world. The first article of the treaty sums it up pretty well. It says that Antarctica shall be used for peaceful purposes only. So the idea is to keep this continent free of war. Um, and other articles reiterate the point and talk about scientific investigation and like how it shouldn't be exploited for minerals, all these kinds of things. You know, good ideas in practice, right? But they're pretty hard to enforce uh, if it comes down to it. 
I think one of the most important things about the treaty is that it freezes all claims to sovereignty in Antarctica. So no one owns Antarctica. And all these bases that we're talking about, the Chinese, the American, the Australian, all these bases are not sovereign territory. So let's take, let's, let's fast forward back into this story. Um, you know, I don't think there's any suggestion that China is violating the treaty in this story, in this report. Um, and I want to make that clear because I think that can get missed in, in you know, mainstream media. Um, and it's not to say that this new station they're building will be used in any way that contra- uh, contravenes that treaty. But, you know, it's it's an interesting story nonetheless. Um, actually, I, and before we go on, I think it's interesting that the U.S., have said that they've conducted inspections of the Chinese facilities and found nothing out of the ordinary. So that's the context. So then, then what's the concern here? Well, I think the concern here mostly has to do with location and proximity of where this station is. Um, and that the fact that China has been, you know, moving in a pretty ambitious way to expand its footprint across the globe, uh, often with the intent of challenging Western interests. So the question here is, I think, why would they treat Antarctica any differently to, say, the South China Sea? Uh, on the proximity point, China and Chinese and American assets are closer together in Antarctica than just about anywhere else in the world. Um, they don't need to fly spy balloons from you know a continent away to to take a peek at what the U.S. might be doing um, if they're only a couple hundred miles away, right? Um, and uh, Antarctica has some of the uh, clearest skies in the world. It's it's often very very blue and and clear down there, which makes it a pretty great place to conduct the kinds of satellite operations uh, and signals intercept work um, uh, that China China does and could intercept stuff from New Zealand and Australia, which, you know, isn't too far away and, and are both countries of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing uh, arrangement. Tell me more about uh, China's expanding footprint. You mentioned the, the South China Sea. I think listeners will be aware of some Chinese activities down there. Where else do Chinese officials seem to have their eye on? Everywhere is the short answer, um, which is understandable, right? They're a global power. But for the purposes of this conversation, I think it's interesting to consider the opposite end of the globe, the Arctic, uh, where China's leaning on its relationship with Arctic states to really become a player in that region as well. It's probably one of the reasons why China wants to get so close to Russia, or you know, one of the many reasons, um, because the other Arctic states, the US and Canada, are paying very close attention to China's activities. The Arctic is becoming more and more important, as I think everyone knows, as the ice caps around the globe start receding, there's new shipping routes, valuable resources like oil, um, and and those are all really geopolitically important. Plus, the Arctic's ice sheets act as sort of a cover that make it much harder for submarines to be detected. And again, as with the Antarctic, it gets Chinese assets that much closer to American territory, right? So, so what's next in both the North and South Pole? Yeah, well, I think in the Arctic, the trends are pretty clear. Um, China's really trying to become a player up there, um, even though, like I mentioned, the Arctic is kind of 1,400 kilometers from the nearest point to China. They really want to be involved in Arctic matters. As for the Antarctic, I think things are a little less clear. But let me re- reiterate here, and I, w- I want to be very clear. We shouldn't be dramatic and sensationalist about this. Um, These are exactly the kinds of things a country of China's size and economic power would do. Um, And there's nothing to suggest that their intentions aren't peaceful and scientific. But Ethan, I buried the lead a little. Remember that the Antarctic Treaty of 1959, which governs Antarctica, um, well, that can be modified starting starting in uh, 2048. Uh, and that kind of means it, it sort of, it, I, I don't want to say runs out because that's not quite the right word, but that's the idea. I personally don't think the world will agree to keep Antarctica frozen, for want of a better word, 
um, in 2048 like they did in 1959. I think there'll be a different regime. Um, so things start to get pretty interesting once we get close to that date um, and things could change in Antarctica very, very quickly, which is very internationally intriguing. Today's show is sponsored by Babbel. Going on vacation is great, but exploring the world like a local is even better. And not speaking the language is no longer an excuse. Babbel offers 10-minute lessons designed by real language experts focused on conversational skills in 14 languages so you can learn a language in three weeks and board your next flight abroad with confidence. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So, John, we're going only slightly further north for our next story. Yeah, we're stopping off in a country with nine Antarctic bases, uh, which uh, is very surprising if you ask me, but that's not what we're talking about in this story. We're talking about Chile, the country with nine Antarctic bases, um, and their president, Gabriel Boric, who has announced plans to partially nationalize his country's lithium production. And I say partially because this isn't exactly like the other instances of nationalization that you might think of, like, you know, the state takes control of the industry and nationalizes the companies and all that kind of stuff um, and forces foreign companies to leave. This is a bit of a hybrid model, um, assuming his plan passes Chile's Congress, which, you know, certainly isn't a guarantee. Uh, Boric is mandating that all new lithium mining contracts include state-owned firms as majority partners. Um, and as for the old existing contracts, he says he's going to respect the private ownership. So that's kind of the hybrid model. But he wants companies to negotiate with the state on new arrangements. Kind of, you know, I, I don't want to say a threat, but that kind of like, I hope that you will do what we want. <laughs> I think an important point, just to pause there on uh, the, the fact that this plan is no guarantee. Boric does not have a majority right. in Chile's Congress and is not necessarily the most beloved political figure, but we'll leave that to the side. Who is uh, Gabriel Boric and, and why this plan? Yeah, he's, he's an interesting character, actually. He, he was elected last year, some folks may remember. Um, he's a big Swift fan, Taylor Swift fan, <laughs> which I found interesting. Um, and he's the youngest head of state in the world uh, at, at 37. That's around, that's around your age. What's your excuse for not being? How, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> What's my excuse? I'm busy. I'm busy. Uh, busy having a, a, a great conversation with you, Ethan. <laughs> but but Boric, no, Boric is part of this group of leftist and uh, kind of left leaning leaders uh, that have swept across South America in recent years. Um, we've talked about some of them on on the show: Gustavo Petro in Colombia, obviously Lula in uh, in Brazil. But Boric has. I would say one of the most ambitious kind of visions or platforms of any of them. He campaigned on a plan to do what he's doing, nationalize lithium. Um, and he's following the legacy of another leftist Chilean leader, uh, Salvador Allende, who was uh, famously deposed in a US-backed coup. But before that, he he tried to nationalize, or he did nationalize all sorts of industries in the 1970s. Um, anyways, you asked why Boric is, is nationalizing lithium. Um, the context here again is Chile isn't the only country to have done this recently. Mexico nationalized its lithium industry last year. Um, and, and I think the reason comes back to the specific mineral in question, lithium. It's among one of the most important components in all sorts of important things. Uh, electric car batteries, smartphones, laptops, you name it. And Chile has more lithium than any other country on earth except for Bolivia. 
Um, so there's a huge economic opportunity here. That, that, that's the TLDR. Uh, Boric seems intent on winning Chile some economic spoils. And, and one other thing that's important to mention here is that lithium mining has a pretty sizable environmental impact. Um, and it happens to be concentrated in indigenous areas in Chile. So Boric wants to manage those externalities as well. So it sounds like a, a ton of benefits. I guess you're now yeah. uh, duty bound to tell us why this plan might not be so good. Duty bound, exactly. As you say, I would say duty bound. <laughs> but yeah, um, there are lots of risks here. Uh, we saw almost immediately um, how markets responded and it wasn't positive. Uh, the world's largest lithium mining company, Al- Albamale, I'm probably butchering that pronunciation, but um, they have huge operations in Chile and they saw their share price fall by 10% um, pretty much immediately. Now, some people probably won't care too much that a mining company's uh, shares took a bit of a nosedive, fair enough. Um, but I think the bigger point here is that lithium mining requires a lot of investment, a lot of cash. Uh, and if it's not private companies poning up that cash, then it's going to be the taxpayers, right? Um, and I, I think it's true, it's fair to say anyway, that state-owned mining is less efficient than private mining and doesn't necessarily have a great or a better track record than private industry on managing environmental risks. You know, perhaps that'll play out differently in Chile, but um, historically, there's not a lot of evidence for that. Um, I think we need to remember too, as I said before, lithium is one of the most desirable goods on the planet, uh, and Chile has a whole ton of it. So Boric obviously wants to kind of harness the upside without the downside, and he thinks that, uh, I guess, nationalizing the industry is is the best way to do that. John, you mentioned that these nationalization schemes don't always go according to plan. One and where? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of examples, but one big one is Venezuela, uh, which has the most oil reserves on Earth. That's a surprising fact that I think most people might not realize. But uh, their state-owned oil company has been mired in, you know, for at least a decade in in really Olympic-level corruption. Um, Mexico's oil company is is fairly similar, um, though not not as bad, probably. Um, and also, Mexican, as I mentioned, nationalized lithium last year, and it, you know, it's too early to tell whether that's gone well, but you know, we'll see. Um, And then we come to Bolivia, which I mentioned before, as having the largest lithium uh, reserves on the planet. So all of those examples are not to say that it couldn't work. Um, There are good examples of nationalization of industries being really successful, right? Uh, Saudi Arabia comes to mind. It's clearly had huge success in nationalizing its oil industry. Um, But as I've said, the question I think is how willing the private sector will be to participate in Boric's plans or whether companies will move their operations to more you know, business-friendly countries. I think Boric is betting that they won't have a choice because of the lithium in the ground in Chile. Uh, but time and time again, that's not necessarily how things have played out. Well, John, all those pastrami sandwiches in New York City aren't going to eat themselves. So I'll let you get back to it. Thank you, Ethan. Talk soon. <laughs> Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni has vetoed anti-gay legislation, which threatens the death penalty for certain acts, for not being harsh enough. Some U.S. lawmakers have threatened to withhold nearly a billion in annual assistance if the bill ultimately passes. Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez told Parliament last week that drought is now a central political and territorial challenge. The country is in its third consecutive year with extreme drought conditions, and reservoirs throughout the country are only around 25% full. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, I've been waiting my whole life for another album from the critically acclaimed hip-hop group The Fugees. That doesn't seem to be coming. 
but I was happy to hear that the group's members have been staying busy. Check out the international intrigue to see what I mean. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday. <laughs>